Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Bossemeyer with UCI Conversations. My guest today is UCI Professor of English, Folklore, and Literary Journalism, Professor Carol Burke. She's authored at least six books which cover a wide spectrum of topics from 1992's Vision Narratives of Women in Prison to 1978's Back in Those Days, Reminiscences and Stories of Indiana. One area that she specializes in a lot is military culture and veterans. As a folklorist, she embedded with U.S. Army combat units in Iraq and Afghanistan as a cultural liaison. In 2005, her book about the military came out called Camp All-American, Hanoi Jane and the High and Tight, Gender, Folklore, and Changing Military Culture. Wow, 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 a lot to talk about. Welcome, Professor Burke. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. You're, you're welcome. Why don't we just start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I was born and raised in the Adirondacks in upstate New York in a little mining town. Oh, okay. Where did you go to university? I went to, I did my undergraduate degree at Earlham College, a small liberal arts college in Indiana. I did an MFA in creative writing at Cornell University, and then I completed my PhD at the University of Maryland. Okay. So it sounded like writing was really up your line. That's You were really interested in that. Yeah. I was, and I started writing when I was a kid. Yeah, gotcha. Um, gotcha. Did you always think that you would go into academia? No. When I started my college career, I was pre-med, oh, majoring wow. in chemistry. And I loved literature, so I would squeeze in any literature courses that I could. And eventually, I just preferred being around my English major colleagues than my chemistry lab rats. And so I switched, and that was the trajectory that everything took after that. Okay. So coming out of college... What happened then? Well, that's when I went on to graduate school at Cornell and got an an MFA. And then soon after that, my first book, a book of poems, was published. Mm -hmm. And then I did some part-time teaching, as a lot of writers do. But at the time, there was a program through the National Endowment for the Arts, poets in the schools that later became writers in the schools, and a lot of young writers were getting gigs through that. It paid well. They sent you anywhere from elementary school, middle school, high school. And so it was, that's where I learned to teach. That's where I learned to teach writing. Mm. And it was really useful and Also, while I was working, going to these different schools, one school, there was a teacher, and I would go with any teacher who wanted me in his or her classroom, and because that was the most important factor. And one of these was a special ed teacher. And while I was working with these special ed kids, obviously, most of them didn't have any writing skills. And so I started doing what I would do with kindergartners and first graders, which is basically we would do a collective story or poem, and everybody would contribute a line or a phrase, and then I would copy it down. And so I decided 
gee, you know, this they're really producing some interesting things. So I started bringing a tape recorder. Mm. And that's how I really made the shift from just teaching creative writing, teaching poetry, to the sound story. Mm. And from then, I realized that I was in Indiana, the home of the first university folklore program. I was editing a magazine at Indiana University, running into lots of folklorists. And I also got a grant. It was based on what I put it together as was like the WPA programs for writers in the 1930s. And we had a few writers, and we all went out, and this wasn't into schools, it was with senior citizens. And so we go out in these, you know, little tiny villages at the local library, and people would come and tell us their stories. So that grew into that. And then finally, I thought, well, you know, as I finished my PhD, why don't I concentrate on folklore mm-hmm. and the personal narrative? And that's how I got here. Gotcha. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is UCI Professor of English, Folklore, and Literary Journalism, Carol Burke. Right now in the interview, she briefly talks about how the famous American folklorist Studs Terkel influenced her and how she was interested in normal, everyday people. Was Studs Terkel an early influence? Yes, he's terrific yeah. and great interviewer. Yeah. And it was, uh, and the idea of concentrating on the normal person or the guy on the street or the woman, you know, in in her house. We did a lot of that. And in when I switched to working on military culture, at first I was really disappointed because most of the oral history projects that were done in America, they started with admirals and generals mm-hmm. whose histories and whose reflections were already documented. Mm-hmm. And in places like Australia, they didn't. They started with the normal digger, the, you know, the foot soldier. Mm-hmm. So I had one Fulbright to Australia and to work on military culture. And it just seemed like that's what. And then I, I eventually got a job teaching at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. And here I was amidst all of this very, very rich culture and folklore. Right. And nobody, no academics were documenting it. Yeah. And so it was an open field. And Once you got your PhD, how long did it take to get to the Naval Academy? Well, I was finishing up my PhD after I had gotten this tenure-track job at the Naval Academy. And I had gotten this job. I was teaching part-time at Goucher College, and that's when I started taking courses to finish up the Ph.D. And this job opened up. I applied for it. It was starting a writing center at the Naval Academy. I got that job and then was just finishing up doing a dissertation and doing the field work for a folklore dissertation. So you're at the Naval Academy and you're starting to develop ideas about a project. 
when I looked at that book, I was really amazed at how much of the underbelly of the culture it was it was really amazing. Did they know? Did, I mean, was it were they support? Oh yeah, yeah great. Do, do, go do <clears throat> this, or was it uh, not that overt? Well, the Naval Academy, unlike West Point and Colorado Springs, the Air Force Academy, has always, since its founding, been 50% military faculty, 50% civilian. West Point, Colorado Springs were, at the time, probably about 95% military. And so I had civilian colleagues, but it was my military colleagues who were really enthusiastic about what I was working on. And the guys, they knew that I was collecting what folklorists call latrinalia, the graffiti on the walls of the John. Right. And so they would bring me, they'd say, oh, have you heard of this one? And (laughs) then they would bring it to me. And so they knew what I was saying about it. They knew what I was working on. But I had just left the academy. And so I decided it was okay to publish in a more widely read journal. And I had an article come out in the New Republic. Before it came out, the New Republic people, unbeknownst to me, gave it to some female members of Congress who then questioned the Secretary of the Navy. Well, if Burke says, if what she says is true, now we know where Tailhook came from. And so even though I'd left and gone to Johns Hopkins, uh, they started an investigation, they interviewed all my friends, and were very interested in naming, where did I get this? And naming people. And I said to them, any questions you send me, fax them, I will answer them. But I'm not going to tell you who my sources were, because these are some of them people in uniform and mm. or people still there. Mm, and right. and but it's true. Mm. And uh, then, you know, there was a backlash of the right wing in Congress and trying to intimidate me at wow. Hopkins. And uh, wow. but. You know, fortunately, I finally, I went to the legal counsel there, and there was a guy there who was terrific. He was an old libertarian, and he said, no, they don't have any right to keep hassling you about this. And uh, so it came to my aid, and it was fine. It just blew over. But it sounds like at the time, they're pretty big issues. Did you foresee that it would become a big issue? No. I... Thought I knew that somebody needed to talk about gender integration and how the ways in which the hypermasculine culture was impeding it, mm. and it was impeding it through their traditions, their jokes, their stories, even their rituals. Right, and somebody needed to yeah. point that out. You know, as a male, I must say when I was reading through your book, overall, the, well, very much a machoism about that as a male, you kind of get into it. Yes, okay. yes. And one, the first semester I was at the Naval Academy, 
And I was, you know, busy on another folklore project. And I came in very early one morning before classes even started. And there was this group of, they were would-be Marines, because Marines recruit from the midshipmen who are there as well. And there was a small group. They were out running. And as they ran, they were shouting this chant, rape, maim, kill babies, ugh, over and over. And I stood there by my car, and I listened as they came closer. And then I thought, oh, I've got to be collecting. I need to be collecting some of these marching chants. What's going on here? I didn't. Yeah. I was yeah. I was surprised. Yeah. And I went to my first class that day, and I said to my students, I said, I just heard the strangest thing this morning. And one of my students said, uh, well, ma'am, you know, when I came pleep summer, that's the summer before they start as freshmen, when they learn some of these chants. And he said, yeah, I found it pretty offensive to begin with. But he said, don't worry, within two weeks, you, you just don't listen to them anymore. And I said to him, what you just told me is a little more frightening than what I heard this morning. The fact that you would further this in a kind of unconscious way, and that was how the tradition was working. People didn't, you know, raise their children to be misogynistic. And the way in which groups function, I think, and a lot of people join military institution because it's one of the, or at least it was at the time, one of the few institutions that would confer manhood on those who belonged. And that may have worked when it was all male, and it might have been efficient and advantageous. Mm -hmm. But when you have an integrated force, it's really saying to, at that time, it was 11% women. Now it's more like between 16 and 20 in the Army, not in the Navy. But it's saying to that minority, you don't belong. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. saying it through its culture. Mm -hmm. Things have improved a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the result of more and more people speaking up and opening the doors a little wider to women in other, now in combat arms. Mm -hmm. And that's made a big difference in the culture. Gotcha. You are listening to UCI Conversations with Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is UCI English professor Carol Burke, who previously taught at a number of universities, including the U.S. Naval Academy. Coming up, we briefly discuss the academic rigors of an academy, where once you start a class, there's no dropping the class because you lose interest or are not doing well. The grade you get in the class is the grade, period. Impressive. Here we go. How long were you at the Naval Academy? I was there six years. Mm -hmm. And I was tenured, too, while I was there. At the Naval Academy? Yes. Yes. Wow. How come you left? Well, I got a... A job offer a at Johns deal. Hopkins, yes. <laughs> and, you know, to their credit, the Naval Academy counteroffered and I had a lot of good friends there and respected what was going on. I had good students. 
Yeah, can you talk a little bit about the students? I mean, it's a. I will say when I visited the Naval Academy, I was really impressed with what an academy is. You, yes, it, yes. It, I was a master of dropping classes. And, you <laughs> oh, know, no, that, no, It's no. like, are you kidding me? It's like, <clears throat> this yeah. is the class. <laughs> yes. What you get is, there's no right, right. diving. Yes, no. <laughs> and it's, you know, very structured, disciplined, but because it's so selective, it recruits a lot of really good students. And... The problem that students face at any of the academies is having to balance their military responsibilities and training with their academic career. And that's hard to do when lights are out for freshmen at a certain hour and, you know, some of them are under their covers with their flashlight trying to finish what they need to do for the next day. And because they might be overworked at night and physically because they're all in a sport they're all working out and sometimes you see them in class and they're a little sleepy but there's a method for that a counter method for that in all of the services and that's if you're tired and feel like you're nodding off you stand at the back of the room but you know they're generally really students who want to serve their country, have wanted, you know, be part of something larger than themselves. And that's the main draw. And they're just really good kids. Mm-hmm. From there, you went to John Hopkins? How, yes. How long were you there? I was there nine and a half years. Okay. And yeah. did you come to UCI after that? Or? No, I was at Vanderbilt for three years oh, okay. and then came to UCI. How did coming to UCI come into being? Was it just you saw the opening and you applied? or Well, no. It was the attraction for me at UCI was it was just starting a literary journalism program and talked to the dean and the chair about that. And Barry Siegel was coming in at the same time I was coming in. And I was assured that I would be a good help to this program. And so did that as well. And taught some English courses, taught at least one course a year in literary journalism. And then I ran Humanities Corps for three years. That's the stint that a faculty member does. My topic was, of course, war. And then I had a Mellon grant with Cecile Whiting in art history. And our grant was, again, a two-year grant, and that was on documenting war. So we offered graduate and undergraduate courses, all kinds of events around that. And most recently, I have been away on a Fulbright in India and starting doing some preliminary research on my next topic, which is on the Indian Army and counterinsurgency. And my hunch was, before going, that the high-tech American army that has waged two major wars of counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan, one still ongoing, might be able to learn something from the Indian army, because all of their wars, but 
really two have been counterinsurgency wars. Mm. And indeed, my research proved that that was right. And so I will be continuing with that after I finish up this book on Afghanistan. Gotcha. It's such a big topic. It, it, we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan for the, our longest mm-hmm. wars. What is going on? Well, I think if you look at our entry into both of those wars, what you see is a demonstration of American confidence that America's military can topple any regime. And that's true. We do it extremely well. Within a hundred days, within a couple of months, uh, we we got rid of Saddam Hussein, we got rid of the Taliban. What we our hubris prevented us, I think, from projecting out was what was it going to be like building a nation after that? And what was it going to be like? Because the enemy is not going to go completely away. And as we've seen in Iraq, a new one's going to come in and take its place. And what does that entail in terms of American endurance. And when you look at counterinsurgencies, particularly the long history of the British fighting counterinsurgencies, and you don't see a happy story in much of it. Yeah. And, but counterinsurgencies typically take 20 to 25 years. And had we acknowledged that when we went into both Iraq and Afghanistan, I think we might have made another decision. Yeah. There must have been people in the State Department who were waiting. And the CIA, yes, yes. They knew. Yes, yes. Mm. And, but when you have, um, you know, you have a democracy and powers can change every four years. And so you have, and then you have this push to show one's strength as a leader, and there's an awful lot that pushed us into both of those wars. Mm -hmm. And it's been very, very hard to completely extract ourselves from them. Now, you've been embedded in Iraq. Mm -hmm. How long ago was that? In 2008, I was embedded in the Iraq War. I went as a journalist, and I went to write one story, and I actually wrote five. And now you were at UCI at this time. You yes, a- yes, and it was. I was only there for two months, and when you're on a base, and the unit that you've gone with and you want to write about, and this was my topic, was how do these infantry units really understand the culture on the ground that they're there in many ways to protect. Mm-hmm. And counterinsurgency, you want to weed out the enemy, protect the civilians. And it's often hard to tell who's who. But that said, and I was working with some cultural advisors who were doing that, 
But they didn't always get out. And so you're on a base, and you'll go out with anybody who's gone out. And so one time I went out with the people who were training the Iraqi police, and they were also training prison guards. And I said, you know, I've done a book on women in prison. Do any of these prisons have women's units? And they said, oh, yeah, 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 the one right here in Kirkuk. And I said, can I go along with you? And I did. So those are the kinds of things that you don't go planning to write about, but you find it there. And then while I was on this Iraqi base, the local interpreters, Arabic interpreters on this American base who were contracted with the Americans, they weren't Iraqi Americans, they were locals. And and I always preferred them because they knew the slang and they were they I thought they were better. And one day they all come and say, can you help us? Our contractor in America is capitulating to the Iraqi government insistence that we give them all of our family members' names, their dresses, everything. And these were people who had to take circuitous routes to even get home to visit their family because they were in such danger. Many of them had been killed, and not the ones I was talking to, obviously, but many interpreters, local interpreters, had been killed or threatened. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote an article on them, and that, interestingly, it was just a little, you know, online piece, but I think probably had more power than probably anything else I've ever written. I know it was passed through the halls of Congress, and the company backed down. Wow. And did not collect that information that would have further threatened them. And this was, you were talking about Iraq? Yes, yes. And Afghanistan? And Afghanistan, one of the stories I'd written about Iraq were these cultural advisors. And I found it fascinating. And so I applied to the U.S. Army program to serve as a cultural advisor. They accepted me. And because in my field, I'm in the humanities technically, but I also have a secondary appointment in anthropology. And it's uh, you know my my f- because I do field work. I don't work with printed text. My methods are much more social science methods, and so I was on one of these little teams. there, social scientists. I went through four and a half months training. I took a leave without pay from my position here to actually work for the army, and then I was sent to a headquarters base in. Afghanistan. It was the north of Afghanistan. Kunduz, a volatile area, was to the east. And this very volatile Taliban-controlled area, Gormach, where I spent most of my time, was uh, quite far to the west. And that's where I kept being sent. You know, so I'd hop on a Black Hawk, head out there, or go a fixed-wing part of the way, and then helicopter or convoy the rest of the way. So I was there about 10 months. And what year was that? 2010, 2011. Oh, okay. 
can you believe you did that? I mean, is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was something that I had written for, by then, a couple of decades about military culture, but I'd never deployed. Right. And to be able to go and be on the ground gave me new insight, new respect for the pressures that these units were under and how little they sometimes, it wasn't their fault, how little they were trained in anything about the local culture. And we do have this overemphasis on our technical ability as an armed forces and justifiably we're we're the most sophisticated technically the most sophisticated army in the world but we often the simplest things like i would you know i do these briefings sometimes for just local patrol units and i would in briefing them i would say okay I've seen on your little base, I know that it gets, when it rains, it gets muddy. And I know that you folks want a rug outside of your tent so you don't track in all this mud. But I can show you images that I have taken of some of these rugs that you have gone to the local bazaar and you have purchased a prayer rug. And a prayer rug is treated with a great deal of respect by Muslims. And you have Muslims uh, cooking your meals and serving as interpreters, and you're wiping your muddy feet on a prayer rug. Let me show you the difference. They didn't want to offend the religion of these people who are helping them, mm. but nobody had ever taken the time. Mm. And most, even most of the officers didn't know the difference between a regular rug and a prayer rug. Right. And so that, you know, it was sometimes it was just simple little things like yeah. that. So y you have really interacted and worked with, worked for the military. You, you've mm -hmm. been on the outside mm -hmm. looking in and on the yeah. inside looking in. Yeah. Do you have any overall observations that we haven't already talked about? You know, is it, I guess, you know, what I hear is, 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 is respect that, um, but there, from a critical eye, mistakes. Yeah, and I would say that historically, those mistakes, have the ones that I've studied have been associated with gender. A lot of that has changed, and and are you saying since reason. your book in two thousand five yes. to now, a yes. lot of that a has lot changed. of that has changed. Yes, and as more and more women come into roles that have historically been exclusively male roles, all it takes in a unit is a couple women demonstrating their expertise, and then they gain respect for the most part. And I do think that historically, racial integration happened sooner, and it started sooner than gender integration. And 
it's not even complete right now. You look at the higher ranks, and they're less integrated than the lower ranks. But there are not the traditions that lingered as long that were racist traditions. And there were plenty of them in the U.S. military, the Canadian military that I've documented, the Australian military. But a lot of that went by the wayside, particularly post-Vietnam. Women, it's been a more recent phenomenon, but a lot of that has changed now that the the combat exclusion has been lifted. Mm. Do you feel like our military is stronger because of this integration? Oh, absolutely. You have more to choose from. Mm-hmm. And more talents pool. Yes. Talent pool is bigger. Yes. And when I was at the Naval Academy and looked at the entrance requirements for women and or the entrance uh, uh, qualifications for women and for men. And what you see is generally academically a little more proficient and that's true of, you know, scores of, of entrance into universities, too. The applicant pool in terms of academic ability is richer. And I think that women have had to prove that they could withstand the physical rigors of combat. And they've done that. Now, you know, I've, I've always argued that if a billet, a particular position in ground forces requires extraordinary upper body strength, then fine, you identify that, you tell why, and you exclude men. And there are men in the military right. who don't have that as well. Mm-hmm. And But just don't make it dependent on gender. Mm-hmm. Where are we with gender in the military? Uh, Certainly, you know, at UCI, I see that the progression of gender and sexuality, I don't know if, you know, Mm -hmm. it it, it is, you know, I'm an old guy. Things are (laughs) progressing faster than I, 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 I'm amazed. Um, Where are we with, is, is it gender? Is it sexuality? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think that the military has done what civilian institutions did before them, which is to distinguish behavior, i.e., you know, harassment behavior, fraternization, from uh, identity. And they were slow to do it, but it has been done now. And when you look at um, units that have had transgender people in them, and what you see is that when individuals work with somebody who may have a different sexual preference than they do, might be transgender, when you see that they work with them, they work fine. And there hasn't been a problem that I know of about any of these efforts. So it's just, you know, from the outside, if you're impatient with change, you want to just say, just get on with it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting. We have a situation here at the station that um, a, a transgender individual, and so pretty fast I identified this, and mm-hmm. it was like, oh, that person's acting different. But ultimately, it's like, well, the content of this presentation, okay, it's a little different, but the content was valid. It was what I needed to know. Mm-hmm. And I actually had this, the thought process for me was like, okay, you know, it's a former, you know, identify whatever you want to call it, a guy who wants to be known by a female name. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just respect that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And And in fact, when I need help with things, this individual helps me. Mm-hmm. Sure. And we recently had lunch, and um, that's all. It's just a respectful yeah. relationship. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have to be mean who I am, or I mean, it's just respectful. Right, right. And I think that's that certainly happened throughout the military. And it's only and I think now it only becomes an issue, red herring. I would argue when politicians get in the mix and want to make a demonstration. It doesn't function on the ground as uh, an inhibition. And if there's any institution that can insist that its members leave the bigotry away, it is the U.S. military. And it's highly disciplined. And, you know, if someone comes in as a private and the sergeant in control wants to maintain an institutional line, that can be done. It's, it's mm-hmm. not that, that difficult. You've mm-hmm. joined a different culture. It's different in many, many ways. And it's willingness to welcome and tolerate difference is one of those ways. And you just better learn it. Mm, gotcha. Can you comment on, you know, military, military operations, it's macho, it's brute force. It's, no, this is not how we want it, and we're going to change it. And you come in as, as a military force and force. Yet, in the culture, in your books, in your research, from what we know, it can be dehumanizing. People get killed. Mm-hmm. Yet... From a human standpoint, when people are just people, that seems to be 180 degrees from what the group mentality. How, how do you balance that? Well, I think that when one enters the military, one is ready for change. And I think that this idea of hypermasculinity has certainly been used. It's used in basic training to galvanize a group. But more and more what we see is there are basic training is gender integrated more and more. And when that happens, the old misogynistic chance that they would learn in basic training drop away. They have to. Because nobody, no drill instructor wants to be somebody who is complained about as sexist, as misogynistic. 
You know, there was a study that was done many years ago by the Rand Corporation. And, you know, it's a conservative group. And they were asked by the U.S. military to look at the issue of sexual preference and what they found and integration into the armed forces. What they found was that it really was less of an issue if you had good cohesion with the group. It wasn't necessarily a cohesion that depended on everybody building up their biceps. It was a cohesion that respected the group and what each one contributed. And if you have that cohesion, what does it matter? whose sexual preference is this or that, or who has, you know, black hair, who has blonde hair, who has curly hair, who has straight hair. It doesn't matter. Mm. Color and your skin. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And that respect, especially with deployed units, that respect when a unit has gone into harm's way really changes. It's kind of like a new chemistry. And I've seen it myself. I've experienced it myself. And you know that everyone on your group is going to have your back and is going to help you. And you would do anything for them as well. And, you know, one member of my group was former Marine Scout sniper. Another was an Army captain. Another was a young woman who had an anthropology degree, a civilian. And another was an Afghan-American who I really respected for his ability to be accepted by, because we went outside the wire a lot off the base. That was our job, to if the commander wanted to know something about a little community or about the civilians, we would be the group to be sent out. And that's why we saw a little bit more of harm's way than even Mm -hmm. some of the army units did. Mm -hmm. But I do think that that kind of cohesion is critical. I think the army knows that and knows how to foster it and knows really how to foster it without just, it's a cheap way to just appeal to one's hyper-masculinity. So it sounds like the military has evolved to be in tune with the year 2020. Mm -hmm. I think so, but I do think, you know, we have an all-volunteer force, and Because we have an all-volunteer force, we've had these protracted wars, and we keep deploying people six times, seven times. And you you can't do that over and over and over and not see some erosion on the home front. And if, you know, you send a soldier out, male or female, with young children at home, and then comes back for a year's dwell time. We've gotten that more. That's good. But then you send them away again. You send them away again. That is going to take its toll. And there are some scholars, sociologists, Moskes, who he's not alive anymore, but who argued very strongly for compulsory service. 
And I must say, I'm in somewhat sympathy with that, that in what he proposed was compulsory service that had several tracks. One would be Teach for America, one would be Habitat for Humanity, and one would be the Armed Forces. There would be these ways in which youth could spend a couple of years giving to their nation and have a sense of the struggles in either other parts of their own country or what's going on abroad. And I think there's something attractive about that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, you're- But it's impossible to put in place with full economy. <laughs> You know, it's in 2007 would have been the time to implement it when there was so much unemployment. Gotcha. Your current project, uh, your book on Afghanistan, can you give us any insights into that? Sure. It's the, the first book, other than my book of poems, that I've ever written in first person. And it's talking a little bit about the fits and starts of my efforts to understand the local culture where I was, help the unit that I was with, and what I learned about both the locals and the unit I was serving with. And I know some mistakes that we made, and it's an effort to point to those, but at the same time to explain the almost impossible task of sending military members and expecting that they can understand counterinsurgency without all of the tools. And I mean, even today, there is no anthropology major at the service academies. And if you want somebody, especially, at the, you know, in the Army, if you want people to understand culture, you have to make that part of their training as well. We did have, before these wars began, we had a robust Foreign Service officer training in the Army. But that shrank, as did our outreach programs for reservists who come back, that shrank as well at the very time when we needed it. Mm. And now I see more of our military planners really still going back to this idea that technology is the only answer and we could fight a war solely with drones. Well, we can't. Mm. And we still will need ground troops, and you want to make those ground troops the most prepared, not just technically, but also in terms of where they're going and understanding the culture as you can to be effective. Yeah, yeah. Point well taken. Professor, when's that book supposed to come out? Do you have a date? No, I don't. I will probably finish all the revisions by the end of this academic year and then send it off or seek for a publisher, and that could take some time. Gotcha. Professor Carol Burke, thank you so much for being with us, offering these insights. It's been truly remarkable, and I really appreciate you coming. Well, thank you.